Back in January, the elders sat down for our formal interview with then lead pastor candidate, John Beagle. Ben, could you put the first slide up for me? These were the first two questions we asked him. Uh, as a lawyer, of course, it was one question in two parts. But uh, the first question was this. Please address this group in our church. This group says we are calling a pastor exactly like Bill Kynes. Or a Bill-like pastor. Meaning that we expect John to plug and play into our congregation while making no changes whatsoever or only minor ones we barely notice. Essentially, the church will be exactly the same under John as senior pastor as it was with Bill. Next slide, please. Group number two says, Finally, we have someone younger as our pastor who can make all those changes I wanted to see in the church. Meaning, let's update or change our church culture in various ways that we couldn't do with a pastor in his 60s nearing retirement. So John Beagle, go ahead and answer those questions for us. <laughs> you can take the slide down. Thank you. Well, I just want to do what Tim did this morning. Just put a little marker down for us. We are now officially a church at a crossroads. For the first time in nearly 36 years, our church is without a permanent lead pastor. Many of us come this morning thinking that we're at the end of something, but the reality is the finish line is just a new starting line. What kind of church will Cornerstone be going forward? Well, this question I'm sure is on your mind, and it's on the mind of the elders as well. And we want to do everything we can to prayerfully lead you well during this time. And one of the ways we're doing this is this sermon series. And this series actually started last week, and it's going through June 6th. And the sermon series is simply called, The Church Is Fill-in-the-Blank. And our thought is simple. We best transition to a new pastor by focusing on what the Bible says the church is. Now, last week you heard that the church is precious in God's sight, and in weeks to come you'll hear sermons from elders and former elders and Pastor Cho. The church is a family. The church is a body of Christ. The church is a unique community. The church is an embassy of God's kingdom. And today we see that the church is a place of unity. Well, unity is in short supply these days. It's very hard to find. We all know our country isn't unified, but what about the church? Is the church really a place of unity? Well, sadly, the answer to that question is no. The past two years have proved Christian unity is surprisingly shaky. There have been disagreements on race, politics, COVID protocols, masks, vaccines. We've labeled each other with accusations of wokeness. There's been finger-pointing and mistrust and all of these things have divided many evangelical churches. And to a degree, these divides have even been present in our own church. What we need is unity. But how do we get it? Now, many of you Bible scholars in our congregation this morning would say, the way we get unity is through doctrine, right? If we all believe the same thing, we'll all just be fine. Well, 
there is a degree of truth to that statement. In fact, in our Exploring Membership class, it's a two-part class, and we spend almost the entire first week going over our statement of faith. And by doing this, we say that in order to be a member here, you must believe these things. But to say that unity only comes through believing the same things is a bit like your child asking you, Mom, what does it mean to be married? And you say, it means your dad and I have a marriage certificate. Now, you would never explain marriage to your son or daughter in such narrow terms, right? Marriage is so much more than that. You know a good marriage when you see a good marriage. You know a good marriage when you experience a good marriage. And so it is with unity. Our text this morning is Psalm 133. If you don't have your Bibles open, you can open them now. It's a psalm of David. And it starts with a Hebrew word that the ESV, the New American Standard, and the New King James Version translate as behold. Behold. Now, the NIV doesn't use that word, but instead it uses an exclamation mark at the end of verse 1 to convey the same idea. By using this word, behold, David is calling us to come and see something. Behold, right? It's almost as if he's lifting up his arm to say, behold. And what he wants us to see is a picture of unity. And when we look at this picture, we're going to see something surprising. Unity is actually a product of something else. In other words, unity is derivative It comes from another source. If we want unity, there are things we must do to have unity. And what are those things? It's very simple. Unity is the product of lives lived in the presence of God. It comes from a cultivated, close relationship or walk with God, from a Godward life, a life that you live with reference to God in everything. When we love God and we live our lives near Him, when we seek Him everywhere, when we acknowledge Him in every place, and most of all, when we help each other do this in church, Psalm 133 says, Behold, God's people will dwell together in unity. This morning, we'll see three things about unity from this passage. First, we'll see where do we find it. Second, what is it? Third, why do we want it? So first, why do, where do we find it? Second, what is it? And third, why do we want it? So first of all, where do we find unity? Well, Psalm 33 begins with a bold and energetic statement that you can almost feel jumping off the page. Verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. The psalm begins with the conclusion This is the main argument of the psalm, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. This is the standard. This is the ideal. And David will take the next two verses to show us what that looks like. So where is unity found? It's found in the emphasized word of verse 1, and that's the word together. Unity is found when God's people live together together in unity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you cannot have unity alone. 
You can't be unified by yourself. Unity, by definition, requires someone else. It requires together. And this has been the case of the church from its very start. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the day the church was formed. And Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The chapter then tells us that that day, 3,000 people were added to that together. And so it goes from then until now. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, The Bible knows nothing of religion defined by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of thought or feeling or apart from others on lonely retreat. People of faith are always members of community. People of faith are always members of community. To turn this around a little bit more modern, in other words, there is no I in church, there's only together. Now the location of this particular psalm in the book of Psalms, I think also adds to our understanding of together. We find this psalm in the Songs of Ascent, and the psalm has that in its title. The Songs of Ascent you can think of as kind of the psalms within the psalms. They are Psalms 120 through 134. And these 15 psalms were likely sung, possibly in sequence, by Jews as they went up to Jerusalem to one of the three great annual worship festivals held in that city. And the word ascents translates a Hebrew word that literally means going up, and that's because the people, as they sang this song, literally went up. That's because geographically, Jerusalem is the highest city in Palestine, and so as you traveled there, you spent much of the time ascending or going up toward Jerusalem. So picture a group of people together. They walked together. They sang together. They ascended to Jerusalem together. They ascended to the temple together. And they assembled. They, they went toward God, ascending toward God together. This psalm itself gives us a picture, and what a beautiful picture it is of what the church is. It's a place where we seek the Lord, and together we find unity. Now, there was a period of time, about five or six years in time or so, it ended when I took on some jobs here in the National Capital Region, but for about five or six years, Susan and I ran a half marathon every fall and one every spring. And uh, the second half marathon I ran, I decided that I was going to run with a pacing group. Okay, so with a pacing group, uh, you kind of decide what speed you want to try to run the race in. And then when you get out to the starting line, you find the pacing group. And there are literally several, a couple dozen of these pacing groups, okay? And what happens is the pacer holds the sign up, all right? And you just follow the pacer as you run. Now, when I ran my second half marathon in Lincoln, Nebraska... The pacer said to all of us, he kind of huddled us up, and he said, my job is to get you to the finish line on time, but we're going to slow down through the water stations. There are water and Gatorade stations along the way. Every time we come in, we're just going to slow down together. We're going to get a drink, get hydrated, and then we're going to continue, and I'll make sure you get across the finish line exactly in this time. Well, that is a great picture 
of the church together. People get into the race from believing the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. That gets everybody into the race. People in the running group, though, are church members, church membership. Elders and pastors are the pacers. We hold the sign that we run under, and the sign in our church says, building a community of grace and truth for ministry and mission to the glory of God. Church membership helps the pacers know who were responsible to pace and who we need to get to the finish line. You become a member, the gun goes off, and we run together. Now, along the way, some of you will need to slow down. Some of you will need water. Some of you will get injured. Some of you will think that there's no possible way that you can go on. But the group continues, and we run together. And the job of the church is to get everyone across the finish line. If we run together, Cornerstone, everyone will get across the finish line. The future of Cornerstone is a future together, and that's where we find unity. But second, the psalm also tells us what unity is. Now, the word psalms, literally translated from Hebrew, means songs of praise. And this tells us something very important about understanding this book. It's fundamentally a songbook. It's a hymnal, if you will. It has lyrics, and it's had music in ancient Israel, and even in the modern church, there are certain churches that sing psalms, okay? So people sing it. It's lyrical. It has tunes, but it's also a book of poetry. And one characteristic of the psalms is a heavy use of images or pictures in the psalms. So here's the way the psalms work. The images in the psalms teach us truth, by placing things side by side for comparison. In other words, the psalm, psalms help us understand things by their association to other things, and this is often done through images. Pictures make the meaning clearer, in other words. But the psalms don't just use images to carry meaning. The images also carry an emotion. An emotion, that's right, you're supposed to read the Bible and feel emotion. The Psalms are meant specifically to hit us at an emotional level. So when you read the Psalms, ask two key questions. What relationships are suggested by this image? That's the meaning. And what emotion is invoked by the scene described? In other words, what does the writer or the songwriter want me to feel? Now, Psalm 33 uses two pictures, and they're found in verse 2 or 3. And the Psalm also uses a literary device that's very familiar to us. It's called a simile. And a simile, just in case you forgot your English class, high school English class, it's a comparison of two things using like or as. So we're all familiar with similes, right? My love is like a red, red rose. That's a simile. Uh, Or the opposite type of simile from the song Stitches by Shawn Mendes, just like a moth drawn to a flame. Oh, you lured me in. I couldn't sense the pain. Right? Those are two different similes telling you something about love, and we're familiar with those. But with the Psalms, we run into a problem, especially with this Psalm. While we're all familiar with the use of similes, we use them like all the time, right? Um, we're generally not familiar with Hebrew similes 
because Hebrew similes rely on ancient Israel cultural references, okay? And we've never lived there, so it's not familiar to us. In her book, The Secular Creed, Rebecca McLaughlin says, when we step into the pages of Scripture, we're all immigrants. There are things we just won't instinctively grasp. And I think this is a very helpful way to approach the Bible. When you come to America as an immigrant, you just don't say, well, man, this is the way we did in South Sudan. I'm going to do it like this kind of stuff, right? Well, people in South Sudan don't even talk like that, right? But they come in a certain way as an immigrant, right? They come to learn the culture, to assimilate, to understand it, and that is the key to success. So when we open the Bible, we all come to the Bible as immigrants. We have to do the really hard work to understand the Bible's culture. And in this case, to understand what unity is, we need to do the hard work of understanding these images and how it made them feel when they sang it and what it meant to the first singer. So let's look at the first image in verse 2. What is unity? Verse 2 says it's like a precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. Now, this is kind of weird, right? You probably didn't come into church thinking, wow, Christian unity is exactly like a beard. Maybe a couple of you thought that, but the image used in verse 2 references a very specific event in Israel's history. It would kind of be like me saying, oh, it was like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Instantly, you would all hear it, you would all imagine it, and you would all see it. And this was the same, the singers of this song. The event is what Pastor Tim read for us this morning. But let's look at the key components of it. First of all, the psalm says it's an event that happened to Aaron. He's mentioned by name. Now, Aaron is the brother of Moses, and he's from the Israel tribe of Levi. And Levi is a tribe in the Old Testament that are set aside by God for that nation to be priests. And within the tribe of Levi, Levi, Aaron and his sons are given special status. They were high priests. And Aaron, in fact, was the first high priest of Israel. So priest. That's important to understanding this simile. But what is a priest? Well, Israel, Israel's priests were the official ministers or worship leaders of that nation. And they devoted their entire life to the worship of God. The essential role of the priest is that of mediator. And that's another key word to understanding this psalm. The priests mediated or came between the people and God, representing God to the people and the people to God. In other words, priests lead people into the presence of God. But there's more to being a priest than just its duties. InterVarsity Press's Bible Dictionary says that while the functions of priests are significant, the functions must be understood as proceeding out of a priest's identity. And for priests, holiness, or being set apart, was the chief distinguishing characteristic. Functions of priests seen in this light reflect the presence and working of God among his people. So holy is another important word. Finally, how are priests made holy or set apart? Well, there are several ways, but important to us this morning are the clothes the priest wore and the fact that they were anointed as priests. And that's exactly what was described in the passages that Pastor Tim read for us this morning. In Exodus 29, God gave the nation of Israel specific instructions on how to consecrate or set aside a priest. This was an elaborate seven-day service at the tabernacle 
where the priest was cleansed by bathing, dressed in garments, and symbols that he had to wear in his ministry. And central to this ceremony was the anointing of the priest with oil. Now, oil is another important word to understand this. In the Bible, oil is a sign of God's presence. It's a symbol of the Spirit of God. And the oil used here to anoint Aaron is not just any kind of oil. Exodus 30, verses 25 and 31 says that God gave Moses specific instructions to make a sacred anointing oil for this event. It was to be the work of a perfumer. So this, this required some very detailed craft-oriented people. Critical to the oil was its smell. It had liquid myrrh, which was a sweet perfume, cinnamon, calamus, cassia, which is a close relative of cinnamon, and that has an unmistakable sweet fragrance to it. You can almost smell it. So this oil, anointing Aaron, had a strong smell and it was rich. Exodus 29 is where God tells Moses to use that oil on Aaron to consecrate him by pouring it on him. And finally, we see the whole event brought forward in Leviticus 8. In 8, chapter 8, verse, chapter 8, verse 2, God tells Moses to bring Aaron and his sons and their garments for this anointing ceremony. Verse 3, the entire nation of Israel gathered there to watch this. Moses told them, this is what the Lord commands to be done. And after washing them with water, Moses put their priestly garments on. And Leviticus 8, verses 12, 10 and 12 says, Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so he consecrated them. He poured some anointing oil on Aaron's head, and he anointed him to consecrate him. So, see, it's not easy, simile, to figure out here, but there we have it. This is the event referenced in Psalm 133, verse 2. The anointing of Aaron as a priest. It was a very familiar image to the people that sang this song. And as they sang it, I'm sure they could practically smell the oil as it drips down in slow motion, running, the psalm says, down the beard, down Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. So what we have here is a picture of a priest, one who is holy, one who is anointed, one who is set aside for a duty as mediator. It is a picture of a person who brings God to the people. Now let's ask, what does this image teach us about unity? Well, what it tells us if we want unity in the church, we have a job to do in the church. And our job is to act as holy priests for one another. Again, Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, living together means seeing the oil flow over the head, down the face, through the beard, onto the shoulders of the other. And when I see that, I know that my brother, my sister, is my priest. When we see the other as God's anointed, our relationships are profoundly affected. So how do we act as priests for one another? There, there's lots of ways, and I encourage you to, to think on this. Here are a few ideas. When we are with each other, we actively seek to lead each other into the presence of God. In other words, when we're together, we talk about the Lord, right? We help each other see what God is doing. We help each other see who God is and how God is at work. 
We remind each other that God is at work, not only in our lives, but God is still at work. That though the wrong seems off so strong, we say God is still the ruler yet. We also speak God's word to each other. We pray for each other. We remind each other what God says is true. We confess our sins to each other so that no one here ever gets hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We say to each other, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good because we want to help each other persevere and trust the Lord. Our job is to try to have, help others have faith, to see what God is doing, to see what he will do, and to see that all his promises are true. And when it happens, it's like a fragrant covering. It's a sense of safety, security, and it provides a richness and depth to the church. So I want to hear you to hear me clearly this morning. You have a calling in this church. Don't come to church or Sunday school or community group just thinking of your own needs. Hey, what's in this for me? No, you must come to church thinking of yourself as an anointed priest and asking yourself, who am I going to interact with today who needs to see God more at work in their life? Come asking yourself, what does God want me to say to somebody today? How does he want to help someone see God? How can I help somebody just be more attentive to the Lord? I could give many illustrations of this in Susan and I's lives, but let me just give one. Back in 2011, uh, Susan and I uh, lost a full-term baby. Uh, That year was very, very hard, as you might imagine. But for that full entire year, and, and we were not the town we lived in, we were not natives of, right? The Air Force put us to live there. But for that entire year, two women in our church small group came over to our house every week to meet with my wife. One of them had had a miscarriage herself, so this was not easy to do. But they came, they prayed with her, they talked to her, they helped her see who God was, and they helped her see what God was doing. And I implore you this morning to take your role as a priest seriously. When God is the perpetual focus of our church life, when we raise him high for others to see, Psalm 133 tells us, we will have unity. So that's the first image. It's really rich. We could end on that, but the psalmist doesn't. What is unity? Verse 3 says, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, this made me think of the Munsters. That was like the father and the Munsters, Herman. It's kind of dating myself, I guess, that I would even remember that show. But so you got to ask yourself, you come as an immigrant, what, what is Herman? Well, Herman is a mountain in Israel, and it's at the extreme northern point of Israel. It's over 9,000 feet high, and as such, it's the highest mountain in Israel. And snow covers the mountain most of the year, and patches of snow even remain in the summer. And I can give a personal witness to this being true. In 2019, I went to Israel for work, and we went up to that area. From that point of Israel, you can see Lebanon, and you can see Syria, and you can see Mount Hermon. It was a day in May. It was extraordinarily hot, but you could still see snow on the mountain. Now, this snow condenses to vapor so that a heavy dew descends down the mountain. So Hermon provides water to a land where water is scarce. And it serves a life-giving function. From April to October, there's little rain. And so this dew of Hermon 
is essential to the flourishing of crops and vegetation. The image in verse 3 shows us a very specific beneficiary of this dew. It says the dew of Hermon is falling on Mount Zion. Now, this again requires some unpacking. The idea of Zion, it develops through the Bible. It was first an ancient fortress captured by David. Then it came to not only stand for the fortress, but the hill where the fortress stood. It was David's political capital, so it took on the idea of a city. King Solomon built a temple on Mount Moriah, a hill distinct and separate from Mount Zion. And he moved the Ark of the Covenant there. And when that happened, the idea of Zion expanded again to become the temple and the temple area. And from then it was a short step to where Zion was simply referred to as the city of Jerusalem. Right? It's the land of Judah and ultimately the entire nation of Israel. So Zion, the mountains, and the mountains of Zion, as your translation may say, is a symbol for the nation of Israel. It's a symbol for the people of God. And I think this is what it meant to the people as they sang that song and ascended the mountain. They sang about Zion. They meant the people of God. They meant the living God who's present with his people. So this is the image of Psalm 133, verse 3. It's the always present, always life-giving, always wet dew of Hermon falling on the people of God. It's an image of extraordinary life and power, and it's the image of the presence of God refreshing the people of God. So let's look again and say, what does this teach us about unity? I think it teaches us three things. First, dew falling on the people of God communicates an image of people who expect God to work and who hope in him. The heavy dew came every morning on the high slopes of Hermon. And a morning dew, it brings life and expectation. And we are called to be a church who expects God to be at work. This church actually expects the lost to be saved. We expect all of us to grow in maturity in Christ. We expect God to help us. We actually expect God to answer our prayers. We expect God to glorify himself through us. Jesus says in John 5, 17, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I'm too at work is, are working. So do you come to worship Sunday school, community group, or your Bible study with expectations like that? Do you come expecting God to be at work? Second, not only do we expect God to be at work, we expect him to be at work in our lives. And I want to speak really candidly to some here this morning. I fear some of you have been in the church so long that you know each other so well and you've arrived at conclusions about others. You say, well, this is how this person is. They're just never going to change. I can't let go of that incident from 15 years ago. We just don't get along. May I humbly suggest that this is not a biblical way to view each other. Why? Because you've stopped expecting God to be at work in that other person's life. You've stopped expect seeing that each one of us unique is unique. Each one of us is loved by God. Jesus said the Father is always working. So instead of closing yourself off, would you let the dew of Mount Hermon call you today to say, you know what? I'm still a work in progress. 
My brother or sister in Christ is a work in progress. What can I do? Well, what will God do today in this person's life? And how can I be a part of that? Finally, the image of dew flowing in other people's lives is an image that calls us to constantly refresh the presence of God in each other's life. And this actually has a great cultural grab for us because you probably know what it's like to refresh something. For example, your internet browser, right? Uh, Maybe you try to get Nats tickets a few years ago, the World Series, and you just click, 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 and you want to refresh it, right? The page isn't working. I want to get the most up-to-date information. So you click that little partial circle right up on the left. You refresh, you refresh until you get new stuff. This is what the psalm calls us to do in each other's lives. It's to refresh the page of someone's life so that they can see God and that they can see him in some new and fresh way. And like our priestly duties, this requires humility. It requires thinking of others, looking at each interaction through the lens of the presence of God in that person's life, and just asking yourself, what can I do in this situation to make God more real in their lives? When doing this, there's some very practical questions I like to do to get conversations focused on God. If you're meeting with someone, you can just say, what is God doing in your life right now? What do you think God is teaching you through that? I like this one too, directly from Jesus. What do you want God to do for you? How is God at work in your fill-in-the-blank, your workplace, your home, the current struggle you're in? You can also use just any opportunity to pray with people. When you're talking with another church member on the phone, this is calling the name of the Lord at the end of that conversation. A few years ago, a good friend of mine here in the church, former elder who you all know, Dan Sullivan, invited my two sons, then 18 and 13, to go to the driving range. He said he was going to give give us a few lessons. Now, those of you who have golfed with Dan may think this was foolhardy that we would take lessons in golf from Dan. But hey, we were learners, we had no choice, right? And he offered. So we went to the putting, we went to the driving range on a Friday night, we drove for, hit balls for a while, then we went to the putting green and we practiced putting, and at the end we were all in a hurry to go, especially my boys, wanted to get on to other things and that kind of stuff. And I remember Dan just said, he just led us in a short prayer. He actually didn't even ask us, could we pray? We just started praying. And I don't recall exactly what he prayed, but I remember thinking, this is kind of a strange place to pray, Right? a driving range. But of course, I quickly realized it was wrong. There's no odd place to pray. We're called to pray all the time. And I just remember leaving that night encouraged. Encouraged that my sons had seen that it's not just mom and dad that have faith and believe this stuff. Encouraged that God was actually at work in my life. The presence of God was refreshed in me. And this is what verse 3 teaches us. Come with expectation, God is at work. Come with expectation that God is working in your brother and sister in this church. Come to refresh the presence of God in someone's life. Trust me, we all need it. And when we do, unity follows. Well, our third point, we've seen where to find it, what it is. Let's look last, why do we want it? Well, verse 1 helps us answer that question. It's just good and pleasant. And the Psalms actually use these phrases fairly often. It's good and pleasant. It's awesome. It's great, right? But the main reason we want it is found in verse 3. We want it because verse 3 says, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The ESV, New American Standard, and New King James all translate the word bestow 
as the word commanded. For the Lord commanded the blessing there, life forevermore. And this is probably the best translation because the Hebrew word literally means to command or to charge. What God commands is always important. Psalm 33.9 uses the same word when it says God commanded the world into existence. Psalm 111.9 uses the same word when it said God commands his covenant. He ordains his covenant. So in verse 3, what does God command? He commands his blessing. He commands his blessing to people who live together in unity. I think that's an interesting way to say it. It doesn't say that God commands us to live in unity and then we will be blessed. No, it says God tells his blessing to go where unity is. In other words, being blessed is a description of someone who lives in unity. But this begs the question, what is blessing? Well, the Hebrew word and its derivatives occur over 415 times in the Old Testament. So it's clear it, had an, it was important in the mind of Old Testament people. And the theological word book of the Old Testament says to bless means to endue with power, success, prosperity, fecundity, longevity. Now, I didn't know what fecundity meant, so I had to look that word up. It means to be fruitful. So the one who is blessed is given by God the power to succeed, the power to prosper, the power to be fruitful, and to do so for the long haul. In essence, they're given a rich and abundant life. They are given the good life. And they're given life forevermore. Gene Peterson, again in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, helps us understand this. He says, Psalm 133 throws out just a hint of heaven where relationships are warm and expectancies fresh. We're already beginning to enjoy the life that will be completed in our life everlasting, which means that heaven is nothing quite so much as a good party. Assemble in your imagination all the friends you enjoy being with the most, the companions who evoke deepest joy, your most stimulating relationships, the most delightful shared experiences, the people who, with you, with who you feel completely alive, there is a hint of heaven. For there, God bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So let me ask, do you want the very best for our church? If so, the very best is found in unity. Well, we've seen a short and powerful psalm this morning. And there are a lot of implications for our church right now. But I want to help you see something in this psalm that's a little deeper. This psalm, no doubt, had incredible significance to the people that sang it. It gave them a spirit and sense of unity in everything. But this morning, I want you to see that this psalm is even more meaningful and more powerful for us today. And this is because we actually have someone who can help us live out this psalm. Psalm 133 speaks of someone who is anointed, but we have the anointed one. This psalm speaks of Aaron, a high priest from the line of Levi. We don't have a high priest from the line of Levi, do we? Our high priest does not come to us on the basis of his ancestry. 
but he serves as a high priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And so our high priest is without beginning or of days or end of life. Unlike Old Testament priests, our high priest doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, our high priest sacrificed for our sins once when he offered himself. And finally, we don't have a high priest who had oil come down his beard. We have a high priest who had a crown of thorns crushed into his skull. And our high priest had blood dipped down his beard. Hebrews 7.26 says, Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Likewise, the dew of Mount Hermon is great, but we know now that God has installed his own king on Mount Zion. And this king promises not dew, but living water. Everyone who drinks this water will never thirst again. Indeed, for those who believe, this water will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Hebrews 12, 22 and 24 tells us plainly, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to thousands of thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. We have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And this Jesus doesn't simply refresh us with the presence of God. He is the presence of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the image of the invisible God, the Word made flesh. And He dwelled among us. And now, He lives in us. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 133 gave enormous encouragement to the people who sang it. But how much more so us? We have Jesus. And in the end, unity is nothing more than a product of following Jesus and a spirit of humility. Can the church, can Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church really be a place of unity? Yes. Yes, we can. We really can because we have Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. He will give us unity. As we end, I told my kids I would only say that once when I was actually ending, and that's now. Uh, Ben, if you could put Uh, the first picture up there for me. We begin this morning looking at the word behold, right? We said that the psalm began with the word behold, and there's a picture for us to see. So as we end this morning, I have a few pictures that I'd like to show you. Behold. This first picture is a building, and it may not look like much, but this morning, Psalm 133 has called us to see this as something much more than it appears. And this is because this is a place where anointed priests meet every week to seek God 
and to refresh his presence in the lives of everyone who comes in the door. Folks, this is a place of immense life and immense power where water flows. Can we go to the next picture? Now, this is the entryway into the building. Again, looks pretty simple. But these steps start low and end at the top. And they remind us that as we enter this place, we enter in humility. Unity is the product of a Godward life of humility. We don't just come in this place for ourselves. We come in for others. And the people who come in are all priests. And we all take this calling seriously. Everyone who comes in these doors really expects God to be at work. Next picture, please. Here's where priests actually carry on much of their priestly duties. This is where oil runs down with refreshing conversations of life with God, of encouragement to faith, and with prayer. This is where the dew falls as we expect God to be at work in our midst and we proclaim his name in each other's lives. Next picture. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what happens in here. Uh, but I've seen my own wife come out of this door with another woman and they both looked like they'd been crying and now I know that they were both encouraged because God was at work and God is good. Next picture, please. Finally, look at this beautiful picture. This is where about 200 to 250 priests gather each week And there is power when we gather together. This, you see, is a picture of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belong to God. Each week, we gather to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but Cornerstone, now we're the people of God. Once we hadn't received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And each week we come ready to perform priestly duties in each other's lives. We come with expectation of the presence of God, the living God, alive and well in our midst. What will God do next in our church? God will do great things in our church. And this is the picture I want you to see. It's a picture of unity. What kind of church will Cornerstone be going forward? Psalm 133 gives us the perfect picture. May we be a church where we all sing how good and pleasant it is when Cornerstone's people live together in unity. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for true unity among us. Uh, Prayed for by your Son, enabled by your Holy Spirit. Like all good gifts, it's a gift from you. It comes down to us. It falls on us. It's commanded. It's not something that we can generate. It's not an achievement or a mark of something that sets us out as unique. It's truly a blessing that comes from you. And we pray, God, this morning that you would give us this blessing. God, enable us to live together in unity. May we act as holy priests for one another. May we expect you to be at work in our lives, in our church, in our world. 
And may we learn to reverence you in every single place because there is no place where you are not. God, be honored. Take our church by the hand. Guide us. Help us. Behold, you make all things new. Do it through our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?